It's my pleasure, a pleasure to introduce to you a special guest from overseas, Comrade Ivan Topov, distinguished member of the Moscow Olympic Games Organising Committee and one of Russia's leading sports officials. Comrade, we welcome you, sir, and I would now invite you to address the 1980 North Melbourne Grand Final Breakfast. Mr. Barassi, Mr. Prime Minister Fraze, from leader Brezhnev, Strajvetsi Tavarishi. Hello, comrades. Top of the morning. <laughs> and may there be bacon with your eggs always. Listening today, it may seem obvious that Ivan Topov was not a Russian sports official, or even a real Russian. But in 1980, when Campbell McComas began his career, very few people caught on. The McComas speeches were well-researched, topical and brilliantly delivered. One day he would speak as Laurie McNabb, a senior government bureaucrat, speaking to accountants about wholesale changes to the Tax Act. The next, he appeared at the Logies. Please welcome the Executive Vice President of CNN International, Richard Cox Kennedy. Well, the Gulf War, uh, it was pre-recorded. We simply would not have been able to afford to do it live. Um, <laughs> least of all, when we had the difficulty of locating a live audience. But the, I, I guess it was probably the most expensive six-week drama series in the history of television. When he died suddenly of leukaemia in 2005, an almost unbelievable 1,812 characters died with him. But Campbell McComas was more than just a hoaxer. By the time audiences heard his famous end line... Thank you so much for having me here tonight, but I think you've been had too. <laughs> He had always tried to make a difference. It is 1976, in a basement beneath the Monash University Law School, four final year students dream up a prank. A group of friends and I, who were all in final year of uh, a law course at Monash University in Melbourne, decided to, uh, in an effort to really uh, give the law faculty a kick in the pants, I suppose, and just to remind everybody that the law is not quite as serious as everybody imagined it is and everyone shouldn't have that earnest, purposeful look on their face all the time, we decided to impersonate a British law professor. And we thought that if we were to do a real impersonation of somebody who would grab an audience if he was here, we thought it ought to be somebody fairly eminent. So we went thumb through who's who and found Professor Glanville Williams, whose works we had studied. He's a, a very eminent professor in the field of criminal law in England and elsewhere. And uh, he's at Cambridge. So we styled me Professor Granville, not Glanville Williams, alternative professor of English law at Cambridge University, and that didn't seem to make any difference to anyone. We put up some posters around the faculty, organised a lecture theatre, and briefed a real professor, Professor Louis Waller at Monash, to introduce me. So away we went. Uh, I got dressed up with grey hair and false bushy eyebrows and a pair of horn room academic spectacles, a little pocket-up bow tie and a ten-year-old suit. Uh, generally looked quite natty, uh, an, an attempt to be with it, but not quite getting there. We, we worked on the dress fairly carefully. 
And on May the 5th, 1976, at just before one o'clock, I was chauffeur-driven by my brother round to the lecture theatre at Monash uh, in company with Professor Waller. I opened the door very slightly to see what sort of uh, audience had come to see this great man and uh, was stunned to see an audience of about 450 packed into this lecture theatre, people practically hanging from the rafters, and I was for a moment absolutely flabbergasted and thought, we just can't go ahead with this, closed the door and said, well, this is ridiculous, how can we get out of it? Just about lost my nerve and then thought, well, I suppose we're here, we might as well go on with it. Waller's introduction played an important part in establishing the credibility of the visitor. But Waller had to choose his words carefully. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the Law Student Society has asked me to introduce the speaker this afternoon. It's an invitation I'm happy to accept. This is a unique occasion in the history of the Monash Law School. I don't think it's necessary for me to speak at length in introducing the speaker, and I shan't do so. Time is limited, and what he has to say is on this occasion of much more significance than anything I could say. Ladies and gentlemen, the speech. For the first time, Campbell McComas walked to the lectern. His disguise was now under the close scrutiny of a packed lecture theatre, including the many staff members seated in the front row. The subject of the talk, when no means yes, rape, consent and the law, was chosen to attract an audience. Thank you very much, my good friend, Louis Waller. Being here today is as much a surprise for me as it may indeed be to you. I had intended this to be a private visit to Melbourne, but your president, using, as Louis Waller has said, commendable initiative, (laughs) tracked me down and asked me if I could give a lecture at Monash. I might also say in the same breath that uh, I was invited today by a representative of the Australian Broadcasting Commission to be their guest of honour on their next program, and I'm not quite sure whether I'll be able to fit that in. (laughs) The opportunity to make cheeky comments about the faculty staff was an undergraduate dream come true. Like many successful elements of the Williams Lecture, it became a hallmark of the McComas technique. The names of your professors alone. Allen, Baxt, Campbell, Nash, Weirdamantry, and my great friend Louis Waller. Would grace... Would grace any bench or any bar. Your dean, David Allen... Something of a practical joker in his day, if I remember rightly. (laughs) Well, you can eliminate the practical if you care. (laughs) And young Taylor. Graham, I think. (laughs) I don't remember teaching him. Are all Cambridge graduates. In fact, if David Allen could see me after the class, I've got one or two of his essays to hand back. with uh, appropriate commentaries. I'm afraid he's going to have to repeat one of them. (laughs) And together with my apologies for not having handed them back earlier. (laughs) 
Then he made some substantive remarks on the subject of rape. Let's briefly take a global view of the whole uh, globe. <laughs> In respect of this question, legislation ranges from countries where rape is no longer regarded as an indictable criminal offence, irrespective of consent, to those where the act of intercourse between a consenting married couple can, under certain circumstances, be regarded as unlawful. So, we have two admittedly extreme, but nevertheless fascinating, schools of thought. The one very permissive, the other very restrictive. In Denmark, no means yes. In Bulgaria, yes means no. <laughs> it seems to leave the female at least without a leg to stand on. <laughs> Literally in the former case, figuratively in the latter. He spoke for over an hour. Then there was question time at the end. One student asked him to expand on the difference between an objective and a subjective erection. Um, the difference between an objective and a subjective erection, I suppose. Um, a subjective erection is uh, one that uh, you imagine you've got or think you've got. <laughs> have a reasonable belief that you have. <laughs> an objective one could, I imagine, be held up in open court. Listening today, it does sound like most of the audience were in on the gag. But as would happen many times in the years to come, some cottoned on, but many did not. Very hard to tell who twigged to the lecture and to the hoax, but most particularly we had a, a senior lecturer in the law faculty, a very bright man, who had worked at Cambridge, had seen the real professor, had not actually studied under him, but certainly knew him to look at. We didn't. Nobody had a photo of, of him. I certainly didn't try to look like him. And he came up afterwards, having been mentioned in the lecture as a Cambridge graduate. He said, oh, I'm so-and-so remember me from Cambridge. Word of the brilliant Granville Williams lecture spread beyond the university. Campbell was invited onto the Don Lane show on the Nine Network to write and perform comedy sketches. The producers were obviously nervous about this well-spoken academic type. McComas found a way around it by building it into his character, Professor Max Cranium Jones. Hello again. In addition to my normal academic duties, your government has appointed me chairman of the RWM-TBEC, the Referendums Weren't Meant to Be Easy Committee. <laughs> McComas had by now finished his law degree and was working as a junior in the large Melbourne law firm of Arthur Robinson. The speaking circuit in those days, in the, the mid-70s, was certainly very embryonic in Australia, the professional circuit. There were and still are many people who have a daytime job and for whom public speaking is an extra, a bonus. But there were very few people, and there still are very few people, making a full-time living from speaking professionally in, in Australia. And I guess it just put the idea in the back of my head, oh, this has been a bit of fun, I wonder if anybody else is doing this. Then I went off to practice law for a couple of years and... By the end of that time, by the end of 79, 
I had a number of people coming up to me saying, look, we, we heard about this, this stunt you people pulled at Monash. Couldn't you create a character for us? And so I started inventing um, American dental technicians and <laughs> German uh, businessmen, experts in, in automotive engineering and uh, Australian government officials talking about uh, the new tax act. In his part-time career on television, he made appearances on the ABC and the Seven Network and he became a regular on the Don Lane show. But some of the early television work was of dubious quality. I know one farmer who calls his sheep Sean, his chick Ken, and his cow Pat. <laughs> Luckily, it was the speaking circuit that drew him. And I really had to decide at the end of 1979, and this was the big gulp, uh, whether to stay in the law, for which I'd been trained, uh, or to jump into this unknown world of entertainment. But I felt that even if there wasn't a career in this sort of work, there must have been a market because the interest was increasing and no-one else seemed to be doing this kind of work. So I felt, well, that was the time to, uh, to give it a try. And my parents, who I thought I must have felt at the time, my goodness, he's done all this training for six years and he's had two years' practice. Why on earth does he want to throw it away? Having a bit of fun in the relatively safe world of the undergraduate was one thing. Hoaxing the corporate world was another. But the high stakes appealed to him, and from the first his speeches were full of his own brand of reckless and irreverent humour. This fearlessness must have aroused some caution in his legal mind about the laws of defamation, because for the first years he taped everything on a small dictaphone. The Granville-Williams lecture provided a successful model. It was followed time and again. He would be introduced by someone senior who was in the know. We are indeed delighted to have an overseas speaker this evening. Before joining Ralph Nader's Raiders in 1970, Harvey Fox graduated in law and political science from Yale University and worked as a research officer with a giant Dow Chemicals organisation. McComas always wrote the introduction himself and always lavished university degrees and famous connections on the speaker. He topped his class in the prestigious Master of Business Administration course at Stanford University. He lectured at Yale and Oxford before taking up his current appointment three years ago at the age of only 34. He is entitled his address today, Real Estate in the 80s, Valuation for Money. Ladies and gentlemen, Please join with me in welcoming Professor Dale T. Stockton. Thank you, Ian, for that uh, flattering and all too brief welcome. Real estate in the 80s, valuation for money. What a gigantic uh, heavyweight topic I've given myself for so pleasant and uh, relaxed a luncheon as this. Before I get into it, I should perhaps uh, correct one or two misunderstandings in the publicity blurb which appeared in your journal. Advisor to three presidents. Well, I have given some advice to Teddy Kennedy. <laughs> and he took it this week. <laughs> to prepare for the Williams Lecture, he had spent four years studying law and learning about his audience. Now he needed to start from scratch in each new industry. If the telephone rang and he was engaged to speak at the Stock and Station agent's annual dinner, he had to research the meat industry and speak with a level of expertise that could fool the stock agents during an hour-long speech. 
Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is Mr. Angus McCrudden, recently appointed to a new position of Senior Policy Development Advisor in the Department of Primary Industry. Certainly when I first started out, there were four very clear stages. The first reaction that people had early on in the speech was, well, perhaps he's got a good sense of humour, that's a bit of a relief. The second stage is, goodness, he's really done the research. This, mm. is, this, is, uh, this is most impressive. He talks our language. He knows what we know. So it's a reinforcement of their own feeling about their field too. The third stage is, my goodness, he seems to have been extraordinarily well briefed. If he's from New York or somewhere, he knows a lot about the local scene. This is remarkable. And the fourth stage is, aha, there's something very strange going on here. Now, some people, certainly in the early days, never got to stage four. Some never got beyond stage one. They just believed the whole thing and enjoyed it. The business conference was becoming more popular and those attending had begun to dread the lineups of boring speakers. A favourite McComas character was the long-winded government bureaucrat. Perhaps I should begin by saying right at the outset that I am in fact the first assistant to the Deputy Undersecretary of the Policy Advising's branch of the Department of Business and Consumer Affairs. And a favourite subject, their use of stats. Already I'm pleased to say certain significant trends are showing signs of taking the first step towards emerging. <laughs> all we have to do now, and all our energies and talents will be directed towards this end, is to find out exactly what those trends are and what, if anything, they mean. But having said that, and there seems to be no doubt that that's what I've actually done, let's get away from the hard data. Perhaps I can illustrate the answer that I am unable to give by reference to some important statistics. In this way, you'll be able to see how we can all look to the future by keeping our eyes firmly fixed on the past. Let me go back to the last year for which figures are available. Looking at the 12 months ended 30th June 1972... <laughs> the success of his characters was in no small part due to his ability as a speaker. Campbell had been taught public speaking by his father, Jeff McComas, a broadcaster on Melbourne Radio. My father is uh, still uh, teaching effective speaking and media training, and he was in radio for many years. And he says, and he's absolutely right, most of what we say, or most of the effect we have as a speaker, is how we say it. The actual content is secondary. If you put something across with sufficient conviction, you can almost, well, we've seen it happen in sad and tragic instances in, in the 20th century, you can convince uh, a whole nation in some cases that you are the person to follow. But the principle remains that so much about plastics is yet unknown that it becomes dangerous to explore too extensively. We also have irrefutable documented evidence that pantyhose and plastic chairs lead to increased gynecological disorders <laughs> among working women and curiously among a large number of non-working men who used to be working women. <laughs> what is still not clear, and this is why it is still such a grey and in our view untouchable area, is the nature of the relationship between pantyhose and plastic chairs. <laughs> Certainly it's close. 
But is this a product of similar material substances or straight-out animal attraction? <laughs> no one has an answer for that. When he published a brochure to promote his business, he included a piece on the art of the speech. A great speech is a work of art. Like a fine piece of music, it has shape, substance, movement and vibrancy, a sense of balance and completeness. Most importantly, a great speech bears the gift of inspiration. It commands attention and is remembered. Amidst the more difficult clients like insurance agents and accountants, there were some gifts. He must have rubbed his hands together with glee when the Australian Funeral Directors Association asked him to speak at their convention. Visiting English delegate Arthur Boxall addressed the Funeral Directors Association convention in 1981. Mr President, distinguished guests, ladies and brethren, I'm delighted to be here as one of the other members of the British delegation was whispering to me earlier, we've all been dying to come to Melbourne. Yes, it is pathetic, isn't it? But Melbourne, for her part, has apparently for some time been dying to meet us. But I don't wish to dwell on economics. It is worth coming here just to be away from the wailing and gnashing of teeth which we funeral directors invented for individual mourners but have now all too successfully marketed to the whole British population. As one observer wrote in The Economist last week, uh, or it may have been the other way around, last year Britain's economy stood on the very edge of a precipice. This year, it's taken a step forward. <laughs> and with that sentiment, one can only agree. Although I did shudder a little to hear it quoted in a recent eulogy over an unfortunate mountaineer. wish to climb our own private mountains, don't we? But there is a certain height, you know, beyond which the atmosphere becomes so rarefied that even the most fuel-efficient hearse splutters to a standstill, and the least pallid pallbearer gasps for breath and collapses, posing one more problem for his remaining fellows. But no purple panegyric, no matter how well it matches the complexion of the deceased, can do justice to the life of one who has triumphantly reached the summit of human achievement. By 1984, his first 500 characters had been delivered. He proudly claimed that only a handful of people had been rubbed up the wrong way. He did rely on the wisdom of those who invited him as the speaker to judge the ability of their colleagues to laugh at his humour. Nevertheless, his promotional material warned prospective clients, Campbell avoids making any comment that is malicious or personally offensive. On the other hand, of course, 
those listeners with no sense of humour are unlikely to obtain a cure from him. If you're apprehensive, he's probably not your man. Try the yellow pages. But there was nearly an international incident at the America's Cup in Newport, Rhode Island in 1983. I suppose the closest we came to an international incident, if not legal action, was in 1983 where I played a, a British naval architect, Sir Winston Chumley Summers, at an America's Cup dinner in Newport. It was actually done at the invitation of Richard Pratt, who has almost been a patron of mine over the years and a, a wonderful source of encouragement. The controversy about the mystery keel was at its height when Pratt asked Campbell and his Granville Williams collaborator from Monash, Jack Hammond, to come up with a character to speak at a dinner he was hosting for the other syndicates, including the Americans. It was a gala event with Newport and New York old money attending. Richard Pratt introduced the speaker. His yacht had been eliminated from the challenge by Australia too. As everyone knows, much controversy has surrounded the keel of Australia too. I am advised, in the light of recent events, the International Yachting Racing Union has appointed an expert. An expert measurement consultant independent of its own keel boat technical committee to measure and advise on the keel with a view to clarifying the relevant rules. Sir Winston has kindly agreed to discuss it with us tonight. Please make him welcome Sir Winston Chumley Summers. Marquis de Berenger, Baron von Studnitz, my lady Milford Haven, immediate past Prime Minister Fraser, Ambassador Wolcott, Consul General Cordner, Congressman Saint Germain, Admirals Kinney and Service, Governor Garrity, former Governor Kerry, Mayor Haynes, Deputy Mayor Kane. Commodore Stone, Knights and Nobodies, <laughs> Socialites and Somebodies, Mr. Pratt, fellow distinguished freeloaders, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Our host, Mr. Pratt, I understand, is in the business of manufacturing heavy duty cardboard boxes. Now, I have no objection to that. Even in this age of highly advanced technology, someone still has to make heavy-duty cardboard boxes. <laughs> I'm just sorry that he entered one of them in the America's Cup. From bagging his host, he then moved on to the syndicate backer for Australia too, Alan Bond. After all, Alan Bond is probably the most outstanding Australasian businessman of the past 20 years. He told me so himself. <laughs> then to the current president of the United States. Your President Reagan has confessed that competitive yacht racing is a long-time favourite of his. 
In fact, he may be one of the few who could honestly claim they were there when they had the first break. <laughs> and he's been all at sea ever since. <laughs> then to the good folk of the New York Yacht Club. I realise that it must cost an awful lot of money to run the cup these days and that social standards may have changed somewhat since our pleasant little jaunt around the Isle of Wight with the Americans in the presence of actual royalty. <laughs> but in today's world, there is, is there really so little old money left that the New Yorkers feel obliged to accept three challenges from Australia and a defender from Texas? <laughs> then there was the required off-joke which was pure Ronnie Barker, one of the McComas idols. And here, incidentally, I should clear up one small anomaly in Mr Pratt's introduction. You'll recall that he intimated that I was a member of the Royal Corps of Naval Constructors, the RCNC. In fact, I have to tell you that the letters RCNC stand for the Royal Corps of Naval Contemplators. <laughs> It is possible that we British spend too much time contemplating our navels and not enough time looking up other options. Finally, he got down to talking about yachts and their skippers. Present in the room was Bus Mossbacker, successful skipper for the Americans in 1962. The 62's weather is skippered by that wiliest of tacticians, Boss Mossbacker. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> Had a bit more of a sort of a dent in the front. At this point, the wife of Bus Mossbacker got to her feet and stormed out. Followed moments later by her husband. And in the middle of the speech, two Americans from the New York Yacht Club committee who felt they hadn't been introduced properly to this fellow and, uh, and it was all a little bit in for a dig, walked out causing a minor sensation. I was thinking for a moment, all the Americans are going to walk out. This really is going to floor me. But I was, I was frozen for a moment, but then I thought, no, no, we just keep on going. And when the America's Cup final race was being sailed and uh, the Australian yacht went in that famous moment, went over the line, the, the, the smoke went up from the gun and the two boats that were accompanying the yachts, the committee boats, the Australian boat, Southern Cross with Alan Bond and co on board and the American tender with, with this gentleman who'd walked out on board, were not far from each other. And at that moment when we went over the line, Jock Starrick, a great Australian yachty who'd been at the dinner, picked up a megaphone, pointed it across at this fellow's boat, the American boat, and said, that'll teach you to leave our parties early. <laughs> The incident raised the McComas profile enormously. He was interviewed on Parkinson. And he was the guy, actually, who over at uh, Newport for the uh, Australia America's Cup dinner. But we were at pains in producing the speech to inject a little bit of fun, to prick what we saw was a, a bubble of uh, dissent and uh, rather unsporting behaviour. He was famous enough for 60 minutes to do a story on him. The chances are when your company throws a staff dinner or your club has an awards night, there'll be some after-dinner speaking to go along with the after-dinner mints. It might just be a few words from the boss or from the club president. 
But more likely these days, it seems the prestigious thing to do is to bring in a professional talker from outside. By the mid-80s, his output was extraordinary. Often three major speeches per week in different parts of the country. He now saw his work as a one-man theatre performance. I'm not hugely uh, enamoured of the, the, method, uh, act, uh, method, the method, method of acting, but I do think it's important not just to have the speech uh, at, your, at your fingertips, but I try to put myself into the cloak and the, and the eyes and the mind of, of the character too. So I can look back on a speech that I gave, say, five years ago and almost have no idea quite how I wrote it. Mm. Now, that's not any sort of mystical or pretentious thing. It's just that you really do try to uh, inject yourself into the, into the um, philosophy and outlook of the person you're trying to create and, and say things through his mouth so that when you finally come to say them on the night, they sound right. Being the character meant arriving at the dinner or conference already in character. This meant being seated at a dinner table next to some unsuspecting guest and pretending to be the hoax character, making small talk until the time came to make his speech. Ray Martin commented on this strange phenomenon in the 60 Minutes story. The moment that Campbell McComas puts on the wig and the accent, he becomes one of his 400 or so characters. Campbell McComas, it seems, no longer exists. He knows that we know who he is, but he still won't let his guard down, either with us or with the totally unsuspecting dinner guests. They think that we're filming a famous English sports writer. I might arrive at a dinner for pre-dinner drinks at 7 o'clock, mingle with the guests, and then sit at a table and indulge in small talk around the table in, in, as the character... Uh, and then give the speech perhaps at 9.30 or 10 o'clock. So it may be three or four hours or more of sustaining the accent, which is more than an actor would put in in a lead role in a major play. So it's a, it's, it's a very taxing thing physically and, and mentally because your mind is racing way ahead of your mouth. But it helps me to get into the part, and I, would find, I find that much easier than being wheeled on as, as a stand-up comedian might be, and just put on, do your act and go. I, I would always feel a bit reluctant about that. I think that's a, it's a very cold beginning. He began a habit of beginning his performance even earlier by travelling to some events in character. These hours of his secret life got him into other scrapes. I suppose one of the most memorable for me this year, um, in many ways, was playing an American general, a four-star general, and after four fittings I had the most magnificently complete and authentic American general's outfit with Vietnam badges, the, the genuine four stars, the cap, the complete outfit. And walking through Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne on my way to New South Wales, well two things struck me. The first thing was an Australian Army sergeant who didn't know whether to um, cry, laugh, um, weep, bow, kiss my hand, salute or what, and he just sort of turned the other way and pretended not to see. But the other feeling I had while walking through the airport and uh, in my trip up to Sydney was a real feeling of power. To create plausible backgrounds for his characters, he borrowed details of real people from academic journals and industry magazines. 
I got a ticklish situation many years ago with a leading educational uh, administrator or an expert on that field, and I, I actually took some of my CV as, his, as this character from Oregon from his CV. He had visited Oregon. I thought, oh, that's a nice place to come from. And I can remember thinking at the beginning of the night, I just hope this fellow is not here because I'm going to have a hard row to hoe if he is. I'll really be on my mettle. He was sitting next to me at the head table. It was one of those long head tables uh, where, where you don't get much of a chance to speak to anybody but the person next to you. There's no one on the opposite side. And I thought, here we go. And he, sp- he said, uh, oh, well, nice to meet you, Professor. Uh, you know, you're from Oregon, uh, Portland, I think. I was there for a while. I said, yep, yeah, I know that. And he said, uh, where do you live? In, in, in Portland and that was one of the few questions I must say I hadn't thought about and uh, I said um, well I've only been there for, 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 for a short time tell, tell me you, you were there for a while where, where did you live when you were staying there and he said oh I was up on 2nd Avenue just past the post office and I said yeah I, I'm just round behind there amazing isn't it McComas began getting all the big national gigs he hosted the Logies spoke at the National Press Club performed at the Bicentennial Concert before Prince Charles and Lady Di. If anyone was celebrating 100, 200 or even 10 years of something, he was there. Reaching his 40th birthday, he reflected on his career. He was at the peak of his powers, but he seemed to become conscious of the different path he had taken. His university friend and co-writer of The Williams Hoax, Jack Hammond, had continued in the law and was now Queen's Counsel. His friend, Tim Blood, was chief executive of a major shipping company and his brother Malcolm was a merchant banker. Despite his great success, he had difficulty describing what he did to his own satisfaction. Early in his career, he had described himself as a comic lunatic. Now he preferred speechmaker. Neither seemed to him a sufficient achievement. He began to offer a new form of speech where he reprised a few characters and spoke about himself and his career as well. I strive never to decline a fresh challenge or to stop changing. Today's audiences expect and deserve something entertaining, relevant, insightful and original every time. As you can imagine, with each character having to be built from the ground up with a script and a personality all his own, not to mention sustaining the character for anything up to four or five hours at a major dinner. Uh, The work and the pressure are considerable. Very few people are fully aware of the toll exacted by a career consisting of constantly being other people. But I do love it. These speeches often ended with a quote from poet Robert Frost. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. Campbell McComas was a product of Melbourne's leafy eastern suburbs. His parents separated when Campbell was young, in the days when a divorce took ten years. Campbell lived with his mother Meredith, and from her he inherited his strong Christian faith. He was educated at a private church school, Scotch College. But the road mapped out for him took its first sidestep when he contracted polio at the age of four. He made a full recovery, but it took him many years to regain the strength in his limbs. His father, Jeff, was an intellectual 
and a successful broadcaster on commercial radio. He always had a great love of language and was very careful in his use of words and in how he said them. And I can remember coming home in grade five or six at primary school having to put together uh, a few selected words or random words into a paragraph which showed that I knew what they meant. And it was a verbal jigsaw. And really that's all I've been doing ever since. In speeches about his life, he often spoke of his grade six teacher, Miss West. We had a student teacher, um, and I fell in love with her <laughs> at age uh, 11. Uh, but she could obviously see um, a spark of interest in, in the theatre too in me because she took me one night to see Marcel Marceau. Uh, and that was the first time I can recall being in a, in a theatre, certainly with a show like that. And, of course, I was just entranced, fell in love with the theatre as well as her. And um, that, uh, that friendship has continued over all these years. Um, but more recently, I've taken her to see Marcel Marceau a, a couple of years ago when he was out here because I think you can never really completely repay a debt to somebody like that uh, who, who first shows interest in you. And I think most of us can think of a teacher we've had at some time in the past who's, uh, uh, who's been particularly uh, helpful or inspirational in some way. The leafy Melbourne suburb where Campbell McComas grew up also produced Barry Humphreys. They shared many cultural roots and Campbell McComas held Humphreys on a very high pedestal. Barry, on behalf of all those for whom you've made it easier, or at least less terrifying, to set foot upon the comic stage, finally and with feeling, Cobber, thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Campbell. I had no idea I was as funny as that. <laughs> or had said so many wonderful things. For Campbell's 50th birthday party in 2002, Edna Everidge sent a poem from Los Angeles. And it came with instructions that nicely identified the little distinctions a boy from Campbellwell would understand. To be read clearly and metrically by a nice young woman educated at either PLC or Fintoner, if unobtainable, by a fairly nice woman with an MLC or even Lauriston background. Dear Campbell, I would love to be beside you on your jubilee. You are one of my favourite men, and now you are two score and ten. But please, I have no wish to bed you, for long ago I once breastfed you. Yes, Campbell, in 1953 we were great friends, your mum and me, and there was always a wild scramble to babysit her infant Campbell. I must confess I always won, and very soon her gorgeous son bonded with me, though not his mother. One thing I fear led to another. You went to school, then to the uni. Our family moved to faraway Mooney. Life changed, our families lost touch, and yet I missed you very much. I read with a vicarious joy of all the triumphs of my boy, how you had blossomed like a dahlia, become the toast of all Australia. As he approached character number 1800, McComas was travelling constantly and getting tired. He spoke to Margaret Throsby on ABC Radio. Are there elements you don't like? What would you change about? Oh, the, the, the travel, the sheer physical tiredness, mm. uh, I think. But then I enjoy pressure. I purposely put myself under pressure. 
Uh, I think I perform best that way. And yet the, the flip side is that you've got to create some space for yourself and, mm. and for your family. One of his last big television appearances was on the ABC at the 2003 AFI Awards. He created the character Tom Orville from accounting firm KPMG. Thank you. Your rules make it clear that to be eligible for an AFI award, all entries must be Australian productions. By the time current negotiations on the US-Australia free trade agreement reach closure, I'll concede, though not as much as you will, (laughs) that all this will change. In return for giving you people a better deal in agriculture, we're going to have to get agro on culture. In future, in future, in order to be eligible for an Oscar, TM, or Academy, TM, Award, TM, or even an AFI Award, TKO, we propose that all Australian productions must have a minimum of 15% American content. It may be one of the lead roles, it may be the backdrop, it may be the makeup, it may be the accents, it may be the last 15 minutes. It may even be product placement such as McDonald's, hmm, or a Coke, or a Coca-Cola, ah. You see how easy it is. We don't care as long as it's there. It could simply be a matter of renaming your programs. For example, the secret life of us could become the secret files of the U.S. <laughs> Combine black and white with the glass house, and we could see the first black ass in the White House. Working in Perth in late 2004, he became unwell and received a provisional diagnosis of gallstones. He later developed painful cellulitis. Something was wrong. Then, out of the blue, blood tests revealed he had leukaemia of the worst possible type. His wife Wendy and parents Meredith and Jeff had champagne and sandwiches for Christmas in his hospital room. He told them he did not want active treatment. Days later, he died. It had been only five weeks since the diagnosis. The Melbourne papers were swamped with notices by charities and schools acknowledging how much of his considerable earnings and his time he had donated over the years. One of the frustrations of his professional career had been his unfinished play called The Conference. His speech-making career had been a lonely one and he had craved to work in company He and Tim Blood had worked on the play for years. The closest it ever came to production was a reading by Campbell to an invited audience in 2004. This exuberant, exhilarating, exasperating play, The Conference, an everyday farce in three acts and a debriefing, has been rattling around in several cardboard boxes, including my demented head, for a dozen long years now. I hope, no, I know, we'll get it on one day, and I hope you'll be there. In the meantime, my heartfelt thanks to you all for joining the journey and for listening 
for 25 years and tonight to the people I pretend to be and to the real me. As the greatest playwright of them all so nearly wrote. <laughs> Trip away, make no stay. Meet me all by break of day. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended. That you have but slumbered here, while the conference did appear.